Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, Iranians are going to the polls, the first parliamentary election since the wave of protests and anger following the death of Masa Amini in 2022, a death that spoke to many Iranian women about the constraints and danger they face from the Islamic Republic and its morality police. The stakes for this vote could not be higher. The Assembly of Experts, one of the institutions whose members are being elected, is the key deliberative body that will decide Iran's next supreme leader. And the battle for influence between conservative forces and more reform-minded factions is well underway. Whoever wins will shape the Iran that emerges after the death of Ali Khamenei, whenever that comes. So we're going to discuss the forces competing for influence inside Iran's government and the external factors as the regime continues to be rocked by protests as well as by economic insecurity. We're also going to talk about Iran in the Middle East and beyond. Iran's axis of resistance, its proxy groups, are now active across the region, and we'll look at the clashes between those and the United States and the implications if Iran were finally to reach and choose to reach the long-feared breakout point and become a nuclear weapons state. Big questions. So joining me in the studio to answer them is Dr. Sanem Vakil, the director of our Middle East and North Africa program. Welcome. Thank you, Bronwyn. Great to have you back. And joining me down the line from Riyadh is Greg Karlstrom, the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And finally, joining us from the BBC is Siavash Ardalan, a journalist with BBC Persia. Welcome, Siavash. Happy to be here. Great. And you were just telling me before we started that you have 20 million followers on Instagram within Iran, as well as the TV service. Well, we're not sure if all the followers are from Iran, but these are how, this is how many Iranians are following us. Uh, large numbers of them are in Iran because Instagram has become one of the main uh, social media tools for Iranians, uh, in addition to Telegram and obviously WhatsApp. Absolutely fascinating. Thanks very much indeed for sharing that. Sanam is nodding, as you were mentioning, Instagram. Well, let's start with these elections and the people and the kind of choices who are going to decide Iran's next leader. Let's start with the very basics. What is the Assembly of Experts? Sanam, I wonder if you could tell us. Sure. Um, the Assembly of Experts is a body of 86 clerics uh, that are elected every six years and uh, in theoretically tasked with electing uh, the Supreme Leader. There's only been one election of the Supreme Leader, and that was in 1989 after the death of Ayatollah Khomeini. Ali Khamenei was elected in that body. Um, and secondly, the task of uh, the Assembly of Experts is to oversee the Supreme Leader's uh, responsibilities. Um, theoretically, that is their responsibility. But in practice, we've never seen the Assembly of Experts ever exercise any oversight or criticism um, of the Supreme Leader. But it still has a crucial role in, in picking the Supreme Leader. Well, there has only been one election or selection process in the past number of decades. And constitutionally, it, it does have this responsibility. So we do assume that this assembly of experts that will be elected in this coming Friday 
um, could be uh, the body that would elect or select the next supreme leader. Ali Khamenei is in his mid-80s, and of course, he's been rumored to be sick for quite some time. But, you know, we just don't know how he how long he's going to live. And also, it's important to note that in 1989, in the uh, election selection process, they did change the constitution and lower the sort of clerical requirements that were necessary uh, to become supreme leader. So it, it's also possible that constitutional change could come again. And another outcome could be very much in the works that we are not privy to or um, could be being discussed behind closed doors. Of which there are many. All right, lots we don't know. I, but but I think we, we do know that he's 84. And as you said, much speculation about his health. So, Vash, I wonder if, if there's been a lot of talk uh, in other countries about when this transition from the supreme leader will come and the kind of consuming um, attention that this transition is is taking on Iranian politics and government at the moment. Could you just take us into the power that the supreme leader has and, and how significant it is uh, that there is a transition coming? Well, it's very hard to overstate the influence and the power of the supreme leader. He appoints people to the heads of some of Iran's most powerful institutions and the armed forces and in Iran's political system. He has uh, clerics who represent him in all of these institutions, and he has the final say on all matters. So uh, his, his is quite strong, although if you ask him, he might, you know, say that, you know, he, he would like to have more influence over, you know, getting things done the way he wants to. But there is a lot of speculation as to who may replace him. That's really that's really a topic and a half. Uh, all Iranians are talking about that. There's been a lot of rumors about who is being groomed to succeed him. But um, all these have been rumors. Uh, there's no set facts. And given the dynamics in Iranian politics with the armed forces, and on one hand, revolutionary guards in particular, and the clerical establishment and the power play between these two, it's really difficult to say how it will all play out once once Khamenei leaves the stage. And it's not just his death that might spark a you know crisis or a you know succession crisis. That also you know we have to take other possibilities as well. The fact that he might slowly you know deteriorate, he might lose his mental faculties. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. He's appeared pretty healthy. Uh, in the media, though, you know, his presentation to the public is very controlled, but we haven't seen any deterioration in his, you know, mental sharpness and so on. So it's very difficult to say at this stage, and all depends also on where Iran stands at the time of his death regionally and domestically. Greg, Iran's current parliament, which was elected in 2020, has been dominated by conservatives and ultra-conservatives, and many of the reformists and moderates were disqualified. Do you see a similar pattern this year? I think so, yes. So every election in Iran has a list of candidates vetted by what's called the Guardian Council. It's a body that has the authority to supervise elections. And part of that authority is choosing who actually gets to run. What they did during the last parliamentary and presidential elections was to essentially clear the field of any well-known moderate or reformist candidates, people who might have name recognition and might attract some degree of public support. They cleared the field to ensure conservative hardliners would do well in those elections. And uh, they're doing something similar 
uh, in the, the run-up to this election this week. The regime doesn't want to take any chances right now. It's a very fraught moment. You have this looming transition of power at some point, probably in the next few years. Uh, you have a moment when the public is very unhappy about economic conditions, about inflation running officially around 50%. The poverty rate has almost doubled in the past few years. The official poverty rate, uh, people are very angry about economic conditions. Uh, we had mass protests 18 months ago uh, after Mahsa Amani was killed while in police custody. You have unrest in the region right now, a very turbulent situation across the Middle East. So this is not a moment when the regime wants to take any chances of allowing pragmatic reformists, call them what you will, more moderate candidates to stand for election. So something of the same again, but Sanam, what happens to all that frustration that we're hearing about from ordinary Iranians and the uh, the feelings that gave rise to all those protests, including from people, including women who want reform? Well, that frustration is still very alive um, and very much there. What the state has done and, and continues to do is exercise its repressive capacity it is extremely coercive. It surveils um, its people. It has, over the past few months, increased uh, executions of people involved in the protests. So it will continue to use that coercive control uh, to keep a lid on things. But you just never know what will be the next spark, what would lead to the next wave of protests. Iran has had a long history of protests, um, historically, but particularly uh, since the Islamic Republic came to being. And we've seen massive protests in 2009, in 2017, uh, 2019. Uh, it's not an if, um, in my mind, it's a question of when will be the next round of protests um, and people will continue to exert their frustration. And in these um, elections that are coming, the lack of participation, I think, is going to be a sign of protest. Activists um, from prison, um, Nargis and Mohammadi, won the Nobel Peace Prize. Many others um, are calling on people to boycott. And I think that Iranians are disenchanted and frustrated and don't want to give this system any kind of legitimacy. So we will, or I anticipate that this will be the lowest turnout we will have ever seen in 45 years. Sivash, talking about the economic conditions, um, the result of uh, sanctions and all kinds of other pressures on the country, what, what is that like for people ordinary people these days? Well, it's very difficult. Um, there is no hope for the future. And you can see that in the uh, migration figures. Almost everyone that we know is leaving the country. Uh, we had one remarkable uh, statistics of 98% of the graduates of one of Iran's top universities leaving the country. So it's not so much the attractions that the West holds for them, but it's how much they have lost hope in their own future and in their living conditions. From one day to another, things could change. The value of the currency could drop. The prices could go up. The inflation is just really one of the biggest issues that Iranians have. As Greg said, the poverty rate has doubled. So it's very difficult and Iranians are trying to, there is really a very, I've never seen this in the past 40 years, but a very, not even during those years of the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s, but a very prevailing sense of despair. Iran is not a failed state, but sometimes it does feel that way to many Iranians. And just to be clear, it's fairly easy for it. Iranians to leave the country, isn't it, provided they can find another country to accept them. But where are they going? 
They're mostly, well, the Turkey is a transition point, but many of them choose the West, uh, either Western Europe or the United States or Canada. That's the main destinations that they go to. And you will see a lot of Iranians from different uh, backgrounds, different professions uh, working in those countries. And we've seen some of it in, in British um, immigration applications and, and um, people turning up at the borders. So just to pull together this question of how significant these elections are, we've got all these pressures roiling away. Greg, how would you sum up the importance of these elections to the future of Iran? Well, for the supreme leader right now, I think his overarching concern is not even so much the identity of his successor as trying to ensure the continuity of the regime, trying to ensure that this regime and the the very conservative ideology that he has promoted as supreme leader remains intact after his death. That's what he's worried about right now. You have, as as Sanam and Siavasha both alluded to, you have all of these pressures within the system from an angry public, a revolutionary guard that might want to see a different role for itself in in uh, post-Khamenei politics in Iran. Uh, you have pressures from outside in the form of sanctions, uh, the, this sort of shadow war between Iran and Israel, and this increasingly hot war between America and Iran over the past few months. You have big questions around the long-term viability of this regime, and, and there's a feeling that this looming succession is going to do a lot to decide. It's, it's a make-or-break moment. It will decide whether or not and and for how long this regime is able to endure. Sanam, do you agree with that? Yes, I definitely do. Um, Really make or break that there is a chance for reform in these elections? Because we've been hearing this picture of despair and uh, reform-minded candidates not being allowed in. Well, the elections not per se, but the trajectory of the Islamic Republic is contingent on um, the political establishment maintaining control and continuity. And that can happen only by having a cohesive elite um, that is united in spite of external pressure that continues and internal pressure. And it's important to note that the elite remain united in every protest. You don't have massive exodus or criticism coming from within the system itself. There is an impulse of self-preservation for the system, for the Islamic Republic, and for these people who are part of that system. Greg was mentioning uh, Iran in the Middle East and and beyond and the the tensions with Israel and so on. And I wondered, uh, Siavash, if you could then take us into the second bite at our topic, which is about Iran's role. First, the axis of resistance, as it's been called, Iran's backing of all these proxy groups like Hezbollah, indeed Hamas, the Houthis. How deliberate do you think that strategy is? Well, I think it's part of Iran's doctrine. Uh, Iran doesn't have a very powerful armed force. I mean, conventional forces doesn't have a very powerful air force. So as one pro-regime commentator aptly put it, this is Iran's deterrence, or this is Iran's instrument of projecting its power in the region, these proxy groups. They have evolved, they have transformed, they're not the same as they were maybe 10 years ago. But these are tools that Iran advances or perceived national interest in the region. And, and they're, they're very significant in that they, they have so far proved to be a deterrence. And, and a deterrent to what? Well, to, uh, to the calculus that the U.S. or Israel might have in, in, in trying to take Iran militarily, trying to stop its nuclear program. 
I mean, we have been the past 10, 15 years, there's always been talk of the, possi the possibility of a confrontation between Iran and Israel has always been looming. There's always the threatening from both sides. Uh, the authorities are threatening each other, very bombastic language. Each time you think a war may be imminent, uh, but it's not. So I'm sure that is part of the, that, that factors into it. But how, how, how would that work? Yes, for Israel, it's long said, this is absolutely intolerable, the idea that Iran could actually have a nuclear weapon. Obviously, Iran's been making quite a lot of progress towards that. But how does supporting groups like uh, Hezbollah, indeed Hamas, the Houthis, how does that deter Israel rather than, for example, enrage it further? Well, it's a double-edged sword for Iran, isn't it? I mean, Iran plays this game of brinksmanship, but just knowing how far it can push the U.S. or Israel and then it, you know, pulls back. Uh, but at the same time, well, you have, I mean, you know, you look at the discourse in the geopolitics, you see Iran has all these forces, the Hezbollah force amassed on Israel's northern border. It has these forces in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen. You saw how after the October 7th attack, as of each side where, you know, there was this division of, of, of tasks and labor between these different proxy groups in trying to, uh, confront Israel. And uh, if a war breaks out, if Israel does decide to strike Iran, well, it's not as if it will get away with it easily. So it does serve as a deterrent to some extent. Out of interest, do you think the October 7th attacks were directed in any sense by Iran, something the regime denies? Well, depends on what you mean by direction. It's very difficult to say. I mean, at the end of the day, Iran does support these groups. They may have not exactly checked with Iran with dates and times or, you know, all the operational details, but maybe Iranian authorities knew that such an attack would at some point take place. Uh, I don't know. It's very difficult to say, but um, obviously there was a willingness on all parties not to put Iran on the on the center stage and trying to, you know, uh, create that uh, momentum towards somehow confronting Iran after the October 7th attack. All parties decided to for the time being, to, to leave Iran out of it and just to strike back at Hamas itself. Sanam, how far do you think Iran wants this instability to go? It's, I think, a key question. I think what we have learned since October 7th, and I think for those of us that follow Iran, uh, perhaps this was known, um, Iran's primary interest is Iran. Territorial integrity um, and security and stability of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And um, as Yavash mentioned, the axis of resistance is Iran's uh, deterrence. It's its forward defense policy. Um, and it is very happy and willing to use its network. It's, I wouldn't describe the axis anymore as proxies. It's very much a network that's transnational, that's interconnected, that works together. Does it call uh, it the axis of resistance? In theory, yes. The name was given in response to the axis of evil. Yes, yes. And uh, it, it has transitioned away from a more centralized control and management of the axis to, to de decentralizing um, its involvement um, and creating greater connectivity within the groups so that they can operate perhaps with Without Iran, or less Iranian coordination, more empowerment of Hezbollah. The Axis has also got uh, domestic roots in all of these countries, domestic relevance, political influence. And so uh, Iran is a patron and a supporter of the Axis, happy to use and instrumentalize the Axis, uh, but isn't willing to militarily mobilize for the Axis unless, of course, Iran is attacked by Israel or the United States because of its support for destabilizing uh, the Middle East. But would so, you share the view, which I think we've, we've been discussing, that Iran wants to stop short of a, a big war? 
well, at the time of this transition of leadership that we're, we've all been talking about? It's certainly been consistent in its messaging of that since October 7th. And I think what we've seen is that it, you know Iran won't go uh, beyond its own borders unless it sees its security and stability damaged. It wants the access to emerge uh, from the war on Gaza um, fully intact. It wants to preserve Hamas's capacity and it wants to play a longer game because I think the Islamic Republic anticipates that, you know, when the war on Gaza finishes, there is going to be a broader conflict, uh, perhaps a, a more animated uh, period of tension between Israel and Iran. And so Iran needs to be ready for that. Craig, you're sitting in Riyadh and we were chatting just before this podcast started about how, how all roads seem to lead to Riyadh in many foreign policy discussions at the moment. Just tell us a bit about the state of that uh, unexpected alliance between Iran and Saudi Arabia brokered by China. It's remarkable to think about 18 months ago when uh, the protests were ongoing in Iran, if you picked up a Saudi-funded newspaper, turned on a Saudi-funded television station, there was wall-to-wall coverage of those protests. If 50 people came out to demonstrate in a small, remote provincial village that no one had ever heard of, that got four minutes of coverage on the evening news. There was real enthusiasm about the prospect of perhaps some kind of political change or unrest in Iran. And you fast forward 18 months later, and just a few days ago, the Saudi government uh, sent officials to join a ceremony outside the Iranian embassy in Riyadh commemorating the, the anniversary of the Islamic Revolution in 1979. There's been a, a huge shift in how Saudi Arabia publicly discusses and perceives its relationship with Iran. And that, as you say, it dates back to this rapprochement almost a year ago today that they they struck in Beijing that was building off diplomatic work they had done for years prior in Iraq and in Oman. And it was following in the footsteps of the United Arab Emirates, which did its own reconciliation with the Iranians several years ago. And all of that comes from a feeling of vulnerability in the Gulf over the past few years. They're worried about the prospect of conflict with Iran spilling across their borders, as we saw when Saudi's oil facilities were attacked uh, with Iranian support in 2019, as we saw when a drone hit Abu Dhabi in 2021, killing three migrant workers. There's a, there's a fear in the region about the possibility of conflict with Iran, and there's a desire to seek detente. It's, it's not a warm rapprochement at all. And, and many parts of it, including the economic ties that both Saudi and Iran talked up when they signed this deal a year ago, that hasn't really materialized. If you look at trade, if you look at investment from Saudi Arabia going into Iran, uh, there's really not much of that. So it's a it's a very realpolitik cold detente where the Saudis have agreed to tone down their critical media coverage of Iran and the Iranians have uh, agreed to do the same with Saudi and they're pretending that they're friends. They're not really friends, but there's a desire on both sides to avoid direct conflict between themselves. Sanam, you're nodding. Yes, I, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with Greg. And 
both sides um, through uh, this reconciliation um, have understood that direct dialogue and engagement offers some off-ramps um, for Iran, obviously, breaks itself out of containment. Um, it shows that uh, the Trump policy um, of containing Iran, um, even though maximum pressure sanctions um, are still very much there, have come to an end. Iran has restored ties with all of the Gulf states short of Bahrain. And Iran hopes to revive and build out economic and security agreements with Saudi Arabia. And for Saudi Arabia, the direct dialogue with Iran can be used to incentivize and manage Iran's role in the region that Saudi Arabia is um, very threatened by. Of course, it's not going to change the underlying threat perceptions um, and the deep distrust overnight, uh, if ever. Um, But it is an interesting foundation and a shift in the region. Let's just spend a few minutes right at the end on this question of whether the world is ready for a nuclear Iran and whether that's what Iran intends. Nuclear weapons, I mean, not nuclear power. Sivash, I wonder if you could take us up to date with where Iran is in this sometimes sprint, sometimes edging motion towards having enough enriched uranium to make a weapon. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of merit in the belief that Iran aims to become a threshold nuclear state. Uh, According to the latest assessment I have read, Iran is only a week away to produce enough enriched uranium for its first nuclear weapon and one month for six nuclear weapons. But of course, it's the issue of weaponization and delivery as well. Bottom line, it's said that uh, it'll be about six months away Iran is six months away from being able to mount its nuclear weapons on ballistic missiles, if it so chooses. Now that, you know, it's one question, you know, it takes six months and then the ball would be in U.S. and Israel's courts. If Iran does to do that, what course of action would they decide to take? So it's uh, it really depends on when Iran decides to weaponize its, its, its nuclear material and then what the U.S. and Israel subsequently wish to do. And you put it as when, not if. Do you think that that is the the working assumption? They want to take themselves right up to the threshold, as you said, within easy reach, at least. I think that's the intention, yes. But deciding when to mount those weapons on ballistic missiles, I think that's, uh, as you go along, they will decide you know, when to do that, depending on what happens. And that's the question, I think, uh, where the issue of uh, Khamenei's, uh, if Khamenei passes, uh, what will happen and what will be Iran's policy? I think that also bears a lot on, on on this question as well, because I think if he passes... We could say when on that one, at least. <laughs> yes, we could. As solicitors keep reminding me. <laughs> I think Iran would have more incentive to go for the nuclear bomb if, if Khamenei passes, given that you know the Revolutionary Guards will, going, will be holding our levers of power. And they probably would have more justification by saying that now that he's dead, his fatwa against using nuclear weapons can be revoked. Craig, how do you think the US and Israel might respond and, and in fact will respond to this, this picture that is with us already? Well, in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu has threatened for many, many years now that he won't uh, allow the Iranians to build a nuclear weapon and and he will take military action to prevent that from happening. But I think at this point, the utility of an Israeli strike against Iran's nuclear program would be very limited. Iran has dispersed its nuclear facilities. Some of them are heavily fortified. The best that Israel would be able to do is a temporary setback. We're talking probably a matter of months to Iran's nuclear work. And at the same time, by carrying out that strike, 
it would probably reinforce for Iran the rationale for developing a nuclear weapon as a deterrent against future Israeli strikes. So uh, I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it might have been different, but, but the utility of it is very limited now. For the United States, obviously, it can do more damage, uh, significantly more damage to Iran's nuclear program. But there are very real doubts, uh, not just in Israel, but uh, across the Middle East, that the Biden administration that has so far tried to avoid getting dragged into a major conflict in the Middle East, wants to pivot to Asia and focus its attention elsewhere, uh, there are real doubts that it would follow through uh, on its threats, that all options are on the table, and then it might be willing to carry out a strike against Iran. So then you run into some potential second-order consequences of you know, perhaps a nuclear arms race in the region. Uh, bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, has made it clear that if Iran developed a bomb, he would seek to develop a bomb. Uh, you've had other talk from other states in the region along similar lines, and that starts to be a real concern. I don't think it's a given that they're going to go nuclear, and I think whether or not they do, uh, Arab states we're talking here, whether or not they do, it uh, depends somewhat on what America does, whether it agrees to a defense treaty with countries in the Gulf, whether it explicitly extends its own nuclear umbrella uh, to the Gulf states. Uh, it's not a given that you're going to have an active arms race, but it becomes a very real possibility. Sanam, do you think that this is one reason why Saudi Arabia has shown such interest in a civil nuclear power program? One of the things it wanted out of normalization deal with Israel, what it wanted the US to help it with. Well, it's uh, part and party of its vision uh, 2030 and its transformation, uh, decarbonization and, and diversification program. Um, and certainly states in the region have seen investments in civilian nuclear um, energy um, as important for their um, economic development. It has been hinged to normalization, but I think this is much more about bilateral U.S.-Saudi um, relations um, rather than connected to Israel. Certainly Israel is a party to you know, what could come if normalization gets off the ground. Israel would have to underwrite and support uh, the development of a Saudi uh, nuclear program because of its undeclared uh, nuclear posture in the region. But it, it's the U.S. that um, uh, Saudi Arabia is seeking guarantees from, defense above all particularly in the context of regional insecurity in the Middle East and declining U.S. interests, as, as Greg spoke to, and um, trying to define what that uh, defense agreement uh, between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia would look like is also connected to the inconsistency of uh, U.S. presidents and, and their policies to the Middle East. So they want to anchor their relationship in a bipartisan way to avoid the democratic uh, uh, shifts in American politics and, and have consistency above all. Greg, just going back to your point, you, we've been describing this very much as Iran's choice, if you like. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump, and his, when he was president, took the U.S. out of the JCPOA, that's the Iran nuclear deal, and Iran then shot ahead uh, with its, its nuclear program, which had been advancing anyway. Does it make any difference at this point who is president of the U.S. in terms of whether Iran is, is deterred? from getting a nuclear weapon? I think what happens in Tehran arguably happens more than what happens in Washington. I mean, as you say, we've had two now diametrically opposed uh, approaches to Iran policy over the past almost eight years, uh, outright hostility and, and unilateral sanctions from the Trump administration, and then a Biden administration that 
came into office promising to revive the JCPOA and, and has been consistently unable to do that. And part of why it was unable to do that is because it made some early missteps. It was very slow about reviving the talks with Iran. It missed perhaps a window of opportunity uh, when Rouhani's government was still in power in Tehran. Then Ibrahim Raisi comes in at the head of an arch-conservative government and seems happy to just string along the Americans for years of indefinite talks. And we ended up in a situation where before October 7th, they were negotiating not a return to the nuclear deal, but uh, an almost undeclared mini deal where the Iranians would perhaps freeze their nuclear program in place in return for some very modest sanctions relief from the Americans, a, a far cry from what was in the JCPOA. I think the conservative government in Tehran first doesn't want to get fooled again, doesn't want to do what Rouhani's government did and, and sign a deal with the Americans only to have it ripped up. And uh, I think the government also has convinced itself that it can get by without sanctions relief, that it can look to China, it can look to Russia, uh, it can look east, as they say, and, and find other economic partners and find a way to survive despite continued economic sanctions. And I think unless the attitude changes in Tehran, uh, I'm not sure America is going to be very successful trying to negotiate even under a, a second Biden term. Siavash, just knitting this together with our first questions about the election, do you see this being a factor in the elections at, 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 at all, that there might be some change in Iran's strategy on this? I don't think the election per se in itself uh, marks any change in Iran's policy. It's largely become irrelevant to Iranian politics at this stage, uh, other than the fact that you're just seeing the emergence of really a new class of ultra-conservative figures uh, emerging in Iran and marginalizing even the center-right figures. And, let alone the reformists. And as far as the public is concerned, you know, there's always been talk about whether to boycott the election or not, but it's, the situation is such that the pendulum has swung completely the other way, and it seems that people are largely uh, going for the boycott argument. So I don't think this election bears any really significance to Iran's overall policy, whether in the region or domestically. And finally, uh, Sivash, just tell us when to look for the results of these elections, which happen on Friday. Usually for parliamentary elections, it takes about 48 hours for us to have a good picture of, of who is, you know, who has taken the most seats, which faction or which group. And then you know, as the days progresses for, for more outlying provinces, the numbers come in. But I think by Sunday, we'll have a good picture of who has won the elections, most of the seats in parliament and in the uh, Assembly of Experts. Thanks very much indeed. Well, we're going to have to stop there, but we will be looking out for what happens over this weekend. A huge thank you to my guests, Sanam Vakil, Greg Kallstrom, and Siavash Ardalan. Do follow them all on X. Their details are in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So please do like, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. To read more from all of our experts, and to find out more about our events and we're coming into the prime spring summer season of events, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org and you can also find there the work of our Middle East and North Africa program. Next week, you can expect the episode to arrive a little later next Friday as we're going to be talking about the State of the Union and the electoral battle underway between President Biden and Donald Trump. So keep an eye out on Friday afternoon, wherever you get your podcasts, for our State of the Union special. Goodbye from me, Bromnomatics. See you soon.